Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Welcome to the Babylon Project, our last best hope for trash. We're a rewatch pod for Babylon 5, featuring two veterans of the show and one newbie. I am your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along are my co-hosts, Jude and Anna. How y'all doing? Pretty good, for me at least. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a pandemic, so for values of good that still involve pandemic, fine. I braved the wilds of Costco and emerged victorious, um, including with a hot dog. There you go. That's no small feat in these this day and age. Okay, is the Costco hot dog the best dollar fifty you can spend? Pretty sure, yeah. I think it's the best purchase you could make under two dollars. That's a big claim. The IKEA um cinnamon roll. Yeah. Yeah. Also, the Ikea, like, Froyo is also quite tasty. What is it about a bulk, a place where you can buy bulk goods also <laughs> selling delicious food? That seems like a yeah. a weird a weird way to go. I had a, a group of friends that used to uh, live on Costco pizza for a very long time. Oh, no. Mm, I know. Oh, no, that's mm. not, 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 not good. You remember when Target used to have, like, in-store food? And, like, the, I have, like, very fond memories of the scent of that popcorn. Not the taste <laughs> of that popcorn, but definitely the scent. Yeah. <laughs> I remember the uh, the Pizza Hut, the, in, the in-Target Pizza Huts that they had for a while. Uh, it's like it's like every time you go to a movie theater not that any of us have gone to a movie theater in so long uh but like you smell the popcorn and you're like yeah i'm hungry for popcorn and then you eat the popcorn and you're like now i have a stomachache why did i do this to myself this is awful <laughs> that's like every that was like every other friday pre-pandemic for me um we are not a uh convenience food uh rating podcast i believe are that you is sure i think that's a back over my brother uh trademarked thing um, uh, <laughs> or a guy fieri it, possibly oh god yeah. but um anyway <laughs> that, that's horrifying to think about okay uh so hold on what alien race would guy fieri play in a babylon 5 episode Okay, so he would either be a Centauri, or he would go full and on in, and he would play a guest star alien with, like, full prosthetics. Because I fully believe that Guy Fieri can either just wouldn't do it, or he would fully commit to the bit. Yeah. I feel like, but there's also that scene where Jakar is, like, cooking the giant roast beast while singing, which I feel like has fairly strong Guy Fieri energy. Okay, well, first, A, you take that back. And B, uh, I, I'm so offended by that. I don't even know where to start. And I like Guy Fieri, but there, there's no Guy Fieri in Jakar's elegant voice and his charismatic performance in that scene. Guy Fieri it's the, it's is a very energy. nice human being, but there's no charisma to Guy Fieri. 
all Guy Fieri has going for him is like the hypnotic, the hypnotic <laughs> compulsion to keep watching uh, of like a car wreck or one of those gif recipes you see on Facebook where somebody puts a block of cream cheese inside a half a pound of ground beef and then covers it in ranch. Like that's Guy Fieri. Guy Fieri is a human gif recipe. Jakar is a is an alien musical with a very sexy chest piece. Okay? Yeah. Just like, so we're clear. Okay, so okay, I feel now like we can we, move on. God. Aaron, we are so sorry for this. I'm not sorry. Okay. <laughs> Someone, someone here has to defend Jakar's honor from that slander. It's going to be me. Well, I was more like that, that he's so enthusiastic about his like roast beast there. He is. He's he's very and he's like very uh, happy in that moment. But we'll get he, there. I have thoughts he, about that scene. Yeah, yeah. I think I and, think like Jakar is like Jakar is like has like Terrence Mann energy, whereas like Guy Fieri has like the culinary version of like pitbull energy not like the dog <laughs> with the musical but the musical talent known as pitbull oh that's that's a uh a, a wild analogy but i'm into it yeah all right so welcome to our guy fieri podcast wow um, i'm so sorry episode- Aaron. <laughs> all right sorry zathras i'm so sorry zathras um Plus anyways zathras. now we, we're gonna have to roll three? the dice on whether this gets cut or not Zathras, don't cut this. Uh, I, I absolutely insist that my rant about Jakar and Guy Fieri remain in this episode. Uh, I, I, I will not have my defense of Jakar cut. Uh, this episode. Episode three. We are just episode three. We are discussing Babylon five episodes one season one, episode five and season one, episode six, Parliament of Dreams and Mind War. I am going to do the summary for for one five, Parliament of Dreams. So, buckle up. Take it um, away. I got a little punchy with this one, so sorry, not sorry. Here we go. This episode was written by J. Michael Straczynski and directed by Jim Johnston. There's two, three plots going on. There's a lot going on on this episode. It's a real busy episode. Um, but the two main plots uh, are. One, we have a religious show and tell going on on Babylon 5. So the episode opens on an alien trying to bring a religious object that happens to be a blade through customs and Garibaldi handles it with respect. And I can't finish the sentence I wrote. Um, No, Garibaldi handles it exactly the way you would think an icon of toxic masculinity uh, would handle it, which is... He mocks the alien's religion and then threatens to space him. So that's cool. Glad to see that Garibaldi is staying on brand. He doesn't even give the poor guy a receipt for his blade. No, he doesn't. He he tells him that he's going to epoxy it to the outside of the station and then he can go swim vacuum to get it. <sighs> Garibaldi. It's not that I will hate you forever, but I definitely hate you right now. So B5 in any case, is having this big Epcot Center-style Religions of the Galaxy thing uh, that is has been sponsored by Earth Dome. Uh, and the first one of these that we're going to see is the Centauria uh, r- uh, religious ceremonies, which is fucking exactly what you expect it to be. It's a 
bacchanalia for all intents and purposes. There's like fancy party music, which is what I imagine someone with a synthesizer and a cursory knowledge of what Rome sounds like based on a Xena Warrior Princess episode would be. Uh, it's it's a thing. For a culture that's supposed to be all about like decadence and luxury, like a Casio keyboard banging out a few like tweedly notes is real discordant for like the setting. It's like the 90s synth version of like the low key song that they played in Jabba's Palace. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes, very, very accurate. Meanwhile, uh, in counterpoint to this fine musical uh, background, we have a thoroughly trashed Londo, like even more than usual, and a surprisingly drunk Veer. We very rarely see Veer like happy drunk. Like Veer gets like getting through the day drunk pretty frequently in this throughout the series yeah but he doesn't frequently get like having a good time drunk so this is fun to see uh and they're trading some hilarious japes and jokes about genocide uh which is like real fun um they tell a fun religious anecdote about that other species that was on their planet that they exterminated uh and that's what this whole religious ceremony is celebrating and everybody looks mildly uncomfortable uh, but not nearly as uncomfortable as I feel like they should be, given what they've just been told. There's some other stuff going on in the scene, but we don't care. I'll get there. The next ceremony later on in the episode is the Minbari one, uh, which is really cool. I actually really like this scene. It sets a real cool tone for what Minbari is supposed to feel like, which is exotic and like somebody hit the discount crystal aisle real hard. But in a good way, like not in like a bad way. They just, I mean, later on, I don't care. We'll just say it. Later on, we will get some exterior shots of like cities on Minbar. And it's like a close up of those grow your own crystal kits you, you used to, you got when you were in middle school. Yeah. Like their cities are just big old fucking clumps of crystal. Sorry, Justin. Small spoiler. Don't care. <laughs> So it kind of makes sense that like all their technology is kind of crystal, if not crystal based, but kind of crystal aesthetic. So, but what about the data crystals, Shude? Don't start with me. Uh, I swear <laughs> we're not there. We're gonna get there at some point, I'm sure today. But so I like that. There's they. This scene is really good at setting this tone for what the Minbari like aesthetic is, and it's not nearly as like Orientalist as a lot of Minbari. Not a lot, but as some Minbari stuff will get later on throughout the show. That's a line that, that the depiction of the Minbari will always tow kind of closely. And this this one does a really nice job of being exotic. And I'm saying that word too much, but it's that's what it's, they're aiming for. They're trying to look sort of like foreign and different, Alien. but in kind of a sexy way. Yeah, it comes across nicely kind of meditative and contemplative. Also, mm -hmm. speaking of music, like you know, it that actually sets the scene for Mimbari music that's played in the Mimbari ritual scenes, which yeah. is like the the, the um, harp synthesizer. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, yeah. My recollection of this is that it's like one dude plucking on a like a four stringed instrument, very intensely. Like yeah. Bong. 
more or less. Like, it's, I don't know. Clearly they were, I mean, we're going to get to, how do I phrase this? This episode is a strange contrast because on the one hand, you would think from these last two descriptions of the music we've run into that they had hired a dropout from the local community college who was going after, who had talked about getting a degree in music, but decided that they wanted to start a band and somehow they ended up doing music for this show. But also, as we're going to talk about in a a moment here, we also have Jakar's charming scene, which was all put together by the, the, uh, the person in head, uh, the head of the music for the show. So, I don't know. I don't know how to balance those two things. See, I actually like the Mimbari music, but we can we can talk about all this uh, after after the summary. Yeah. Okay. So this ceremony it goes on for a little bit. Um, there's some weirdly sexual red fruit eating that happens in this scene, and apparently uh, it is revealed later on that potentially Sinclair marries Delenn, which as one does. I mean, as one does. Um, there's some stuff there, which we can get into, maybe. Uh, we'll talk about that. Um, the last, at the very end of the episode, we get the Earth religion section, which is like Sinclair agonizes over, how do we show all the human religions? And his solution is to just get a bunch of religious people and stand them in a line and introduce all the ambassadors to these people, which sounds tacky, but fucking works. And I think it works entirely because of, it works entirely because of Michael O'Hare's charisma in that scene. Yeah, yes. it's one of the best O'Hare scenes. If it weren't for his earnestness and his, he brings so much like just gravitas to that scene. That it should feel stupid, but it doesn't. You, it feels very earnest, and I love it. Yeah, we can we can talk specifically about some of the behind the scenes stuff and like why like what they do to make it especially work. And that once we're done with the B and C question mark plots, uh, I called it a part two. But sure, the B and C plots, whatever we want to call it. Um, the second A plot sucks, <laughs> not because it's bad, just because it's. It's painful. Bad. Um, <laughs> the second A plot is that um, while Garibaldi is uh, being culturally insensitive and borderline racist, um, he notices a woman coming on to B5 through uh, the boarding area and has a very startled reaction. Uh, this woman, it turns out, is Catherine Sakai. He runs tail straight to Sinclair to tell him that his ex-girlfriend is on station. It's a shame because I actually really like Catherine Sakai as a character on paper. And when she's not on screen with Sinclair in those few moments, she's great. She's tough and self-confident and doesn't really give a shit about like other, you know, the men she's surrounded by in all these other scenes. There's a scene that we can't talk about uh, later on. No, yes, we can because Justin's already seen that scene. Uh, there's a scene a little bit later on in this where uh, in the series. I forgot the last time we recorded, you hadn't seen shit, Justin, but now you have. <laughs> but the scene, the scene where she where she's going to go prospecting to um, Sigma. Oh, that's that's next episode. That's I mean we're gonna yeah. we're recording that next actually. Is it? 
I can never uh, remember what scene that's 1. in. Oh, that's 1.6. Oh, that's That's Mind War. coming to the same episode. Yeah, that's in Mind War. All right. Um, yeah, so. so uh, yeah, so that, that scene, she's great. Like, you've got Jakar, who is this very prominent, very masculine figure being like, I know what's right. And she's like, fuck off. Like, I'm good at my job. I know what's up. Don't, don't tell me what to do. And I like that about her. But then you put her in any scene with Sinclair. And the fact that these two have about as much charisma as a jar of mayonnaise and a handful of rocks just kills it. Just, just <laughs> kills the scene dead. The two of them, they cannot have screen tested those two together. I was on yeah. Lurker's Guide reading it, and there's like there's a note about how much about how they have such great chemistry, and I'm just like, uh, what? oh, what were you watching of the dailies? <laughs> yeah. Oh, and um, speaking speaking of music, I I have I have another thought on that, which we can get into uh, when we're when we're discussing music mm. throughout. Yeah. Because um, um, I think that the the music does those scenes zero favors. And in fact, no. like negative 20 favors. Uh, agreed. Yeah. So she comes on board and Sinclair does exactly what. So I, I will say I do like that scene because Sinclair behaves exactly like a guy had a primarily religious education and didn't spend enough time around girls would behave <laughs> when confronted with an ex-girlfriend, which is he... Acts super nervous, hems and haws, and then and then finally like breaks down at the last second and asks where she's where her if she was with another guy. It's so fucking like eighth grade. It yeah. kills me. Like on paper, they're so good, and it was a very well written scene, poorly executed. Yeah. Um, the next we see Sinclair, he's at Malari's religious demonstration, and he's not enjoying himself. He can't like get into it because he's just obviously, you know, can't not think about his, his ex. Uh, and he ditches the feast to go track down Catherine. He finds her. They have a super fucking awkward conversation. The only relief of which is her making fun of the fact that his pants are talking, which is very good. He's got his, his calm link in his pocket and it's chirping at him because fucking Ivanova has, brilliant timing in all in all things and is cock blocking him uh, or trying to not intentionally but certainly effectively that whole scene sucks the whole thing sucks um but not as much as the next one with them together in which uh catherine later finds out that while prospecting a i want to say asteroid or something or planet it turns out that that planet was rich in unobtainium or buzzwordium or i don't care it doesn't matter the element name is completely pointless they use it in jump gates that makes it really valuable so she's all of a sudden fucking loaded loaded enough to have a loaf of bread and like some fancy food stuff so she uh rolls into sinclair's quarters for uh a late night booty call and uh sinclair's like i don't know about this and they have their whole conversation about how you know I say this and you say that and then they bang. Uh, I just hate this scene. There's no chemistry. The whole thing is awkward. They both look stupid. They both look like they don't want to be there. Yeah. I don't like it. Let's talk, we'll about, talk about a good it. subplot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The last the last thing I will say about this is the only thing worse than that scene 
is the very last scene with her is when he sees her off at the, at, she goes, she's going off to do her job. And, and he immediately has turned into like the overprotective boyfriend at the end. I hate it because it's so not Sinclair. I just hate it. I just hate yeah. it. And it goes against everything else we like all of the other scenes with her being like, you know, mm-hmm. very like independent and everything. It's just bad. Yeah. Uh, the plot we do like in this episode, the B plot that we do like involves around my, my dude, Jakar. Uh, it turns out. A good boy. Not, Jakar is not universally beloved. I don't understand that, but go figure. A courier arrives with a message from someone named Durok. Apparently, uh, Jakar screwed this guy at some point in the past so profoundly that on his deathbed, Durok has liquidated his family's assets to hire an assassin to kill Jakar. He says this assassin is already close to him. Uh, Jakar immediately begins suspecting everyone. I want to make a, a note that this scene takes place interrupting his meal. Jakar is preparing lovingly preparing a meal when this message arrives. He has a giant, bizarrely huge... I mean, it's like two two fucking pot roasts welded together. It's, it's like Looney Tunes comically large meat. Yeah, it's it's like a uh, like a Looney Tunes uh, Renaissance Fair hunk leg of meat size thing. It's fucking great. And he is singing the best song. I mean, until like the season three theme song, Probably the best piece of music the show has ever had. Um, Zathras, I would like you to put a clip of Jakar singing. Not the whole thing. I don't know how that works. But just put a clip of Jakar singing right here. Zathras obeys. I'm thinking of thinking of calling her right after my afternoon nap. I'm thinking of thinking of sending her flowers Right after Bonnie gets back So many fishies left in the sea So many fishies, but no one for me I'm thinking of thinking of hooking a love Soon after supper is done Thank you. Uh, That song was written by the uh the editor by the the music director of this of the show and was intended to be uh Narnish Gilbert and Sullivan now we'll get into <laughs> we'll get into how good that is later but i just want you to kind of appreciate how the scene when he's interrupted with this news that he's going to be assassinated because his visceral disappointment, he's in such a good mood. He's in such a good place. And he keeps, and he keeps getting like, like the doorbell keeps ringing. He's just like, but my roast beast. Yeah. Yeah. It's so good. I love this scene so much. Uh, He's wearing his sexy chest piece too. So you know that he's loving this scene and he finally gets this message and shortly after receiving it, his new aide appears and he immediately suspects her. Uh, his new aide is Natoth. Uh, apparently Kodath died in a convenient airlock incident. Um, I had forgotten that Kodath was a character. So that should tell you all you need to know about Kodath. Um, really made a big impression. Uh, 
the like 50 times I have watched this series, I legitimately forgot she existed until we sat down and started watching this one with a mind to make a podcast. Natoth, on the other hand, is great. Um, she is extremely nonchalant about the fact that A, her boss is accusing her of being an assassin, and B, that her boss is telling her an assassin is coming after him. She says that if she were the assassin, Jakar would already be dead, which is like classic baller move, especially for Natoth. And then she also says that, whoa, well, don't worry about it. If it was, if he really hired an assassin, they would be obligated to give you some kind of a warning. That's what the Assassin's Guild does. So Jakar is immensely relieved. He's so good. He's like, ah, oh, bless you. Yes, of course. I'm great. Finally, I can eat my roast beast. Yes. The next scene, Jakar wakes up with a black rose, which is a weird but low budget choice for what, like how the assassin would signal his intention, but whatever, it works. Jakar wakes up with a black rose in bed next to him, which apparently is the sign that the assassin It's is, just a is space rose, Jude. A spose. All right, fine. A black spose <laughs> in bed with him. Uh, Jakar has the best reaction to this, which is to give the most melodramatic bellow of fear you've ever seen. It's very good. Yeah, I can't even come close. Not even a try. It's... Yeah, it's so good. I love Jakar so much. Uh, he's so good. So his next plan is like, okay, A, fuck. B, I need a bodyguard. So he goes to the alien sector and he hires some like Hulk wannabe massive bodyguard. And he's like, oh yeah, here we go. I'm fine now. Which is honestly, we expect better of you, Jakar. You are a much more intelligent and strategic thinker than this. You you really should have known be- better because sure enough, uh, his his bodyguard does not show up in time to go to the Minbari Religious Festival. And when Jakar tracks him down in his own apartment, in Jakar's apartment, uh, hours later, he's castigating this poor bodyguard like, where were you? Blah, blah, blah. And he punches him on the shoulder and it turns out he's dead. That's why he didn't show up with a knife in his back. Um, yep. Which... Leads us to the most pointless and best scene. Eh, not best, but very good pointless scene in the in the episode, in which uh, because there's a body in his in his apartment, uh, Jakar is apparently uh, feels compelled to, c- to call Garibaldi. So Garibaldi is interrogating him about this, and I don't know why Jakar feels like he can't just say like, "Oh, I had a bodyguard. Now he's dead. I'm a, a wanted, you know." I'm a popular person. It happens. I don't know. Now, he's playing completely dumb, which is stupid because they've depicted Garibaldi as a lot of things, but not stupid. Not like bad at his job, stupid. Like stupid in a lot of ways, but not bad at his job, stupid. So far as I can tell, though, the whole point of this scene, because all of that serves no purpose. That's the thing I want to highlight about this scene. There is no narrative purpose to this scene except... For Garibaldi to find red women's lacy underwear in Jakar's bed. It's the only point of the scene, as far as I can tell. Now, when I wrote these notes, I could not remember if they had already had the scene where Jakar, uh, where someone interrupts Jakar and two, like, two women come out of his bed, two human women come out of his bedchamber. No, that's that's later. um, I'm pretty sure. I have not seen that scene, I believe. 
You have. So I thought that was. You have. I know it's season one somewhere. Hmm. Yeah. But this um, might be the I first. Think it was, I think it was Natoth, like outside his doors. And like, she's like, the ambassador is, the ambassador is busy right now. <laughs> and, right. and then, then, and then like, two human women come out. And, um, and then she says, the ambassador will see you now. And then Jakar comes out with his sexy chest piece. His sexy chest piece looking way too satisfied with himself. Um, honestly, I could, I could honestly, Jakar should pull. He, he is like, I mean, not should, he does. I mean, he does apparently interspecies. I mean, God damn. There's that, there's that other thing with, uh, Malari's wife too. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. yep. (laughs) Not just across species, but you know, he's, Pulling from the oppressor. Yep. So anyway, apparently, apparently Jakar likes the, the the women from the other species. He's, I think, I don't know what the term for that kind of, I don't know exactly what the term, they're all female, but I don't know what the term is. Xenophiliac. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, Jakar can get it. Let's just put it like that. I mean, um, obviously, with that chest piece, right? I mean, and damn. the and he's got the like he's got the like deep V robe thing, like, yeah. Like yeah. when when it's it's like when Picard goes to Risa, and you're like, well, <laughs> yes, that's yes, absolutely, that is what it is. It's it's also <laughs> like he definitely has like these same like he has a lot of good monster fucker qualities. Like, it's mm-hmm. like, as, as a monster fucker, there are, like, just several things you want. And he has a lot of those qualities. Like, Narn in general, but he definitely... Oh, God, we should finish this summary. Yeah, okay. The short version... Let's wrap it up. I hear the music playing. Um, Natoth tracks down the messenger, because Jakar thinks maybe he knows something. Shock of shocks, it turns out the messenger is the assassin. Who saw that coming? Everyone. Um... The assassin drags Jakar down into uh, the down below to torture him because that is apparently what people do. It will happen all like four times a season for the rest of this fucking show. It's already happened on this. It's already happened once a season. And it will keep happening. Um, Natoth, being extremely good at her job, uh, takes like eight minutes to track him down there. Uh, and then proceeds to do the best thing ever, which is beat Jakar to hell and back in order to uh, break the restraint, the torture restraints that he is uh, bound up with, uh, which is the best. I mean, just she the best. convinces the assassin that she's the backup assassin. Yeah. Uh, and that just she, so she's just going to. Yeah. She's just going to beat Jakar uh, a little bit. She's like, you're being soft on him. You got to beat him a little bit and then just kicks Jakar to hell and back to to break the things and then shows zero remorse afterwards. She's like, yeah, whatever. I kicked you a lot. Deal with it. Just gives no fucks at all. Just completely doesn't care. In the end, they solve the problem of the assassin by bribing him or appearing to. They deposit a large sum of money into his bank account and then stick him on a transport uh, somewhere else. So it will look like he took a bribe and ran. Uh, which ends up being exactly what he has to do so that the Assassin's Guild does, uh, doesn't kill him. Which is a very, one of those classic, like, how you deal with an assassin tropes, but it works really well here. 
that's the end of the episode. Now we can start dunking on it. That's a lot of episode. It's a busy fucking episode. Like, yeah. Any, you could really have done like any two of those plots and have this been a perfectly fine episode, but it gets it gets all three in. Um, really, they could have just left out the whole ill-executed love interest part and been fine. Yeah. yeah. Um, those scenes add do, nothing. Um, I just because we're fresh on that in the in the in customs when they're getting. Uh, the messenger um, when they're pushing up on the shuttle, Jakar has possibly my favorite line of the of like one of my favorite Jakar lines. You will you will know pain, you will know fear, and then you will die. Enjoy your flight. Yes, yes, <laughs> it's so good, and the the execution on that between Jakar and Natoth is just stellar too. They, uh, yeah, it they're so good in that scene. Yeah, there's a. Uh... You definitely get the sense that this is like a bonding moment for Jakar and Natoth, this experience. Yeah. Um, they have a very different dynamic than any of the other, than the other two assassin pairs, or no, assassin pairs, <laughs> uh, <laughs> ambassadorial pairs. Lanier and Delenn have very much a mentor-master uh, dynamic. Or which a master I'm sh- sub d- dynamic, depending on how weird mm. you want to get with it. Which, I, which um, we, I'm sure we'll talk about that plenty in time. Yeah. Uh, whereas Veer and Londo very much have like a, I feel like a, like an older brother, little brother kind of dynamic. It's like if like your little brother was also your butler. Yeah. Well, like, I mean, yeah. he treats him like garbage, but like there's much more of like, he's much more of a, I'm taking care of you. I'm educating you. I'm raising you up. But it's. Also, I'm going to treat you like garbage. Nobody hits my brother but me. It's much more that kind of dynamic. Whereas uh, Jakar and, and Natoth have a very, like, they're buds. You get the sense that Natoth doesn't hold Jakar in any particular esteem, really. Except as, like, you're my, you're you know, you're my friend. Like, they sort of have this admiration for each other. And I think that's really cool. And that's going to pay some dividends in the future, which I really like. Yeah. Um, other fun things about this episode. Um, Lurker's Guide has a quote from JMS that apparently many of the alien races do not have monolithic religious beliefs. You'll note that Jakar didn't take part in the festival from the Narn POV. You'll see Narn beliefs in a later episode. I'm paraphrasing there. Uh and there it's mentioned that there are many different beliefs among Narns, Chiquan and Jalan being the two larger systems. Uh, that said, show don't tell. Yeah. We do We do get eventually, in later episodes, we do get to see Jakar is a follower of Jaquan. And I want to, we haven't done, I haven't done a writer for this episode yet, but I want to say that Natoth is like relatively atheist or... She's like yeah. she's like a lapsed follower of Jalan. Yeah. Uh, right. Okay. Yeah, they do, and they do show the Minbari even get a better. You get a sense of like the different sort of cults and groups within the Minbari later on. Yeah, that the you've got the casts and the like Lanier mm-hmm. from the third fane of Shadomo has slightly yeah. different rituals, etc. From Delen, from the wherever the hell Delen is from. Yeah. But that said, like at this early stage, it's very much the uh, Star Wars mono uh, environment 
of religions going on here where, you know, you have one thing. Um, my other favorite thing about this episode is uh, what is possibly the most bizarre foreshadowing of, of any TV show of all time. Uh, when Londo is tanked and on the table, he is talking about their gods and he holds up a statue, which is not a throwaway gag. Yeah, that statue. The exact statue returns. In a truly, I don't even know what the what adjective to use to describe the circumstances in which we will see that statue later on. Uh, but we learn some stuff. Blurst? Is it blurst? Yeah, there. I, th- I really think it is blurst. Um, I adore that episode, but also learning more about Centauri genitalia was not something I expected from oh, the show yeah. at the time. So buckle up, listeners. We've got some stuff. Um can't wait to talk about alien and, dick. and we need to and we'll get to we'll get to um my favorite Ivanova gif eventually yeah 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 um i don't think justin has gotten to my the the thing i'm thinking of veer counting yeah yeah the, that the my gesture <laughs> oh, is from right. that it's, scene it's from the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah what else about this one uh the last thing i i want to mention and then i will stop talking so much because i've been doing that a lot um i really do truly love the song that jakar sings Um, so good it was composed by the series composer and the direction from jms was that it should be the narn version of gilbert and sullivan um it's and what what are the lyrics? It's like I'm thinking of thinking of calling her up uh, right after my afternoon nap. Uh, I think this. Let me see. I, I believe here it is. I'm thinking of thinking of calling her right after my afternoon nap. I'm thinking of thinking of sending her flowers right after Bonnie gets back. So many fishies left in the sea. So many fishies, but no one for me. I'm thinking of thinking of looking of hooking a love soon after supper is done. It's just such a good, it's so bizarre. Yeah. And twee and just. And I've definitely uh, I sung it. it while cooking myself. Right? I, uh, I just love it. I, it's hands down. There's a lot going on in this episode, but if I could only keep. 10 seconds of this episode, it would absolutely be Jakar singing that song. Hands down. And there's so much with the music in this episode with like, I feel like this is the highest highs and the lowest lows until we get to like fucking season three, where the music in season three, like absolutely slaps. Mm -hmm. But it's like, we've got that bit with Jakar, which is outstanding. And then we have like the... New Age porno synths every time that Sinclair and Sakai are on the scene on screen together, exactly and it makes everything. Yeah, it's it's so bad. Like it if they if they'd had just like normal background music or no background music for those scenes, I think they would have played a lot better. But it's got this like almost like halfway to a porno soundtrack, and it's like just, just... why this. Yeah. yeah, you just need to no. smear a little Vaseline on the lens and just have them, like, touching each other suggestively but never actually showing anything right. too much. Right. And you've like, basically got a soft core scene. Yeah. Um, like, the music is right there. And and it makes the 
you know, along with the fact that they really don't have any chemistry, like it makes the fairly serious dialogue just feel like so out of place. Yeah. Um, and it just combines to be just atrocious. Mm hmm. No, it's a shit show. I do like the Mimbari music with the like harp it, thing. Like I said, I don't think it's bad. I think it's just very like plinky and 90s and Yeah, but it it has fondness in my heart partly because I love the Mimbari. Same here. I I mean Jakar's up here at like an 11 and then the Mimbari are like 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 an 8 yeah. for me. And everybody else is down below the fives. Earth Force is at probably a two. Oh, no way. Dude, Earth Force doesn't Earth Force doesn't get a positive number. <laughs> Ivanova does. Yes. But like Earth Force doesn't. Yeah. Ivanova's God. <laughs> yeah. She's very clear on that subject. Okay, so I'm just looking through my notes here. Um yeah, no, my my note for this one for uh Sinclair and Sakai was I, I like Sin- Sakai when she is interacting with people other than Sinclair, but my note for this for this episode in particular was straight people. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so bad. I'm just like I, I, I genuinely think that the, the, like we're gonna in this episode and I think in our next recording one tonight we're gonna be talking a, a, a fair bit about exes, um, and I think it's deter- I think we can determine that nobody in Babylon Five has had a healthy relationship in their past. Accurate. Let's think. Give me two seconds. Let let me think. Ivanova, no. Garibaldi, no. Glado Heldo. Uh, no, Sheridan. Sheridan, yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, is that what's her name? Anna, yes. Uh, yeah, his wife. Do we yeah. count dead wives? No, I, I, I don't think... No, see, I think we're... T- yeah, uh, yes we're and get, no. We're getting ahead of ourselves. I'll, I'll, give, I'll, I'll, I'll give Sheridan a half a point there. No, I was thinking of um, the... Dylan. <laughs> Mm. there's so i mean i i can't i can't even you know i'm gonna message i'll, I'll message it to you rather than just make I justin could, take, I, could, I could pop the headphones out I'm yeah just pop your headphones out so we can yeah uh the commander that replaces ivanova what's her name oh yeah that's way in season five yeah that's she's like sheridan's like she and sheridan had a relationship or somebody or garibaldi somebody like yeah and she's if it weren't for the fact that we lost ivanova and got her i would she would be a perfectly fine character yeah but but it's it's yeah. like it's the ezri dax problem right like everybody yeah, hates exa- ezri dax because she's not jedzia yeah exactly no absolutely so just anyway you're yeah. good i think yeah i always i always feel like i should like sakai but i just don't well and they obviously don't put her to any use yeah, yeah. Um, she's. I think she's gone after next episode. Yeah, I think she has like one or two like cursory appearances after that, and that's it. I I feel I feel like we should talk about that like line of faiths because this is one of my absolute favorite scenes from mm-hmm. honestly from the show overall. I swear, and I feel like it's one of the really good defining moments for the first season where Agreed. you watch that scene and you really like 
get the feeling of like, okay, so this is the viewpoint here. Yeah. It's really it's foundational. Impactful. Yeah. Foundational is yeah. a great word for it. I think part of the thing that really makes it work is, you know, is that Sinclair is greeting each of them, you know, in the preferred method of that religion. Yeah. And, and the fantastic part about it is that the line just keeps going. It's not 20 people deep. The, the camera pans and it keeps going and going and going. And first of all, like getting everybody to stand that together and like, I don't even know what set that was because it's huge. It's like just for how far down they go. And mm-hmm. it's still going when the camera fades to black. Yeah. And yeah. the the other part that sells that is according to JMS that O'Hare came in, he went down the line of people twice and then did it completely rote. Yeah. Which is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's a bananas memorization feat right there yeah and and that's what sells it i think it's like that o'hare brought like the the care that o'hare brought to it in terms of like that memorization of like o'hare memorized who everybody was what their faiths were and the correct way to greet them and then that translates through to sinclair having that same respect for all the people who are present in that moment the show does a really, really good job of I was just dunking on the show for like show don't tell about the lack of uh religious diversity among the other aliens, but it does such a good job of show don't tell when it comes to some of the character development in this show, yeah, especially with Sinclair in the first season and um Jakar, I feel like. Yes, just everywhere. And that's not just me being like on my bullshit about Jakar. Um, His arc is so, so well executed. Uh, And in terms of show, don't tell. They don't just like, and then this stuff happened and they painted on the wall with a big red brush. You see the evolution of of these characters um, and they really let them demonstrate their backgrounds in, in, uh, in their actions. I think that's something that you don't always see, even in well-done shows. You don't always get those moments played out, which I think is great. Yeah. And it it also ties into what I see as being one of the really fundamental differences between B5 and Star Trek, which is like, I feel like the Star Trek would moment would have been like, well, Earth respects all beliefs, but we don't have anything unifying. And that's fucking it we're gonna just like sit in a blank room and say that like we technically respect other faiths and religions but we don't have any um, because we're you know a perfect society and it's like "Mm, that's that's something that i'm really uncomfortable with with star trek these days but i don't think that's a thing that's that's particularly presented in like modern iterations of trek yeah, but it's definitely there in... It's um, definitely there in Old Trek, but I, I think that's something that they've shied away from, or definitely moved away from and corrected in more modern depictions. Yeah, I feel like it's present even in Deep Space Nine to a certain degree, though, with like how the Bajorans are... like The, the Bajorans are at least portrayed like patchily. 
Um, but certainly it's something that Star Trek, when Roddenberry had a direct hand in it, was mm-hmm. not great with. And yeah, that I'm set thinking a tone. of TNG. Yeah. Where, like, mm-hmm. I think Star Trek in general has a weird habit of being like, it's the future Earth, I guess. Like, it purports to be, because it has this, it, it purports to have this utopian future. It ignores a lot of like our culture, like it ignores a lot of like human culture, yeah. And, and because it's like, oh well, that's not utopian. So it comes up. There's there's a a way in which that can look reductive or bland at times when it's not <laughs> executed well. Yeah. Part of that is the charm of Star Trek. Part of the idea is like, like this is a this new society that kind of comes up. That's this like optimistic joyful exploratory society and you don't have to worry about it but then you also have things like the the ever-present joke about star trek like hasn't anybody ever written anything besides sherlock holmes and classical music because that's all any like because they don't want to touch pop culture that's all anybody ever listens to yeah um so like i get that that uh so it's it's a it's a tension that 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 star trek struggles with that B5 has a very different approach to because B5 is trying to be a little more like gritty. Yeah. And we, I think we actually talk about that. Is it, I don't know if it's this episode, but one of these episodes we were talking about the like uncomfortable amount of like prescience that Babylon five has. Oh yeah. Um, Like political uh, 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 and sociological prescience that Babylon five has. This show leans into the way the the uncomfortable political truths uh, and social social truths of humanity in a way that Star Trek isn't trying to do in its early in in like t- in like next gen. Yeah, yeah. I think that there's I, I there's also some parts of it that is like I Babylon Five is we'll we'll get to this in a later episode in in the season and I don't want to dwell on this too long because I've got some other things I want to talk about that I liked about the episode. But um, it has some instances of pop culture or pop culture on Earth ended in when when it's when the episode was filmed. Yeah, yeah. Um, we will get an entire episode about uh, Garibaldi's love of a motorcycle from like 1992. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not looking forward to doing an episode of that, but we'll get we'll get to that. Um, we'll we'll get there. Something that is very good. That is that is very good, and I want to just comment on the production for this is that the assassin who i don't even remember if the assassin gets a name but in the scene where he is torturing guitar uh, jakar he is wearing glasses and that yes. is a, a 100 percent excellent aesthetic yeah it's yeah. so good um yeah no i like that he it's and he uh they're like and they're not like narn glasses they're human glasses you're like gold rimmed they're really like very snazzy yeah yeah uh and there's a funny note in uh lurker's guide about that because i was curious i looked that up um and it's supposedly it's because the reason why some alien races like the narn because jakar wears uh glasses in a couple of scenes uh in the show eventually too uh it's because among the narn um that kind of physical weakness is not is like uh not a thing that they are comfortable acknowledging. So they have never developed medical science around simple t- 
tools like that, like glasses. Wild. So they, yeah, it's just like not a thing that they have. So they don't, even though they know the technology exists, rather than adopt it themselves, they just buy human glasses and use human glasses. <sighs> I think it's buck wild. But, and that's one of those things that would be like, oh, that's stupid. But also like, no, I mean, <laughs> it, that tracks. Yeah. Um, the other thing that, I, that I'm delightfully, that, or that I like is in the Centauri scene, we get a fucking drunk off his ass Lando calling, mm-hmm. I believe, both Sinclair and Ivano a very cute. Yes. yes. And you are cute, cute. And you are cute. I am cute. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's yeah. cute. Pass out. Yeah. And then and then Veer and now it's saying it's probably, like he has become one with his inner self or something like that. Um I forget yeah. what the exact line is. And somebody says no no, he he passed out and Veer's like, Well that that too. Yeah. As if uh it, yeah, the idea that of course among the Centauri, uh passing out is, is a religious experience. Like of course with the Centauri they would have that would be a thing. Yeah. Some other bits and bobs from this episode. Uh, it won an Emmy Award for makeup design. Yep. And it aired the same night as the Tanya Harding Nancy Kerrigan face off in the Olympics. Yeah. Uh, I remember there's a note, again, a note in Lurkers uh, that uh, JMS was really mad about it because he was super proud of this episode and it got fuck all ratings because everybody was watching. Uh, Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya Harding skate against each other. Oof. Frankly, I think I'm, I think I speak with history on the side of like, it's okay. Somebody could have VH or recorded this. Uh, yeah. All do right. we want to go Mind on to our more. second episode finally? Yeah. Yes, please. We got some stuff to say here too. Yeah. So Mind War. So this is episode. Six of season one, titled Mind War, uh, written by J. Michael Susinski and directed by Bruce Seth Green. So this episode delves into a character we haven't learned much about so far, Talia Winters, the resident commercial telepath. Um, it also gives us a lot more information about human telepaths in general and introduces a new character who is probably like maybe the fan favorite villain of the entire show, uh, Bester, who is played by uh, Walter Koenig. Scene chewing, with scene chewing joy, I would say. Yeah, yeah. he by, is so, is a, so good. It, he, it, it's, I believe my, my first note for this episode is, by God, that's Walter Koenig's music. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, he, clearly is just so happy to be like hamming it up on a sci-fi show again yeah and he's just loving it fun fact he writes science fiction books interesting so so our a plot for this one begins with a pair of psychops named bester and kelsey coming aboard the station um they immediately demand to speak with sinclair Uh, We learn a bit more about Psychops, who are the highest rated of Earth telepaths, and they're given substantially more leeway than others in terms of, like, regulations, um, what they can get away with, how they can interact with other 
systems. Um, and Besser, of course, demonstrates this with some mental dick waving by like talking to Sinclair in his mind, etc. Uh, and it turns out that these two psychops have come to B5 to find and apprehend a rogue telepath um, who's not in the psychor, who Bester claims is dangerous enough to threaten all of Earth Force. Mm. This, te- this telepath is Jason Ironheart, and Bester claims that he was reassigned to Earth Force Special Intelligence before he went rogue, and that he now intends to sell the things that he learned as part of special intelligence to alien governments. Um, Winters, uh, upon learning about this, doesn't believe this. Uh, Ironheart was her mentor, and we'll find out later, lover, uh, during her psychor training. Um, and based on this connection, Bester is suspicious about Talia and iron heart and performs a deep scan of her mind a process which appears to be deeply unpleasant i have a personal like sort of fascination with like telepathy and psionics and fiction i've read a lot of a lot of stuff about it not like i just think they're fun stories and they're interesting yeah and i think it's really interesting in this show the way that telepathy is shown to be the ways in which telepathy is shown to be hard and easy. Yeah. It's almost always shown to be a curse. Absolutely. So yeah. Like he, like they hear more than they want to. And being able to like go into someone's mind is always damaging and painful. And you never see some, you very rarely see a telepath that has who, who once they have a, once they have like, perfected their abilities is not some kind of like kind of fucking scary um it's just interesting to me that that's what jms is trying to tell the story jms is trying to tell with telepaths i don't really have a point i just think it's really interesting but particularly the idea that in a lot of fiction you can have a telepath and they can do a deep scan and like the idea that he chose to make that process consistently this is not a one-off thing like deep scan scans in general but deep scans in particular are always depicted as being violating and uh, unpleasant yeah if not like actively uh painful uh is an interesting choice and i I, i'm i just think it i think it's noteworthy yeah and there's a there's a scene later on where talia um does a deep scan of another character and like really really goes into informed consent of like okay you know i i can do this for you but it's not it's going to be real bad um Mm -hmm. i think it's also partly that telepaths are kind of called on to do some really dark shit like that um i think that talia if she if she had just like you know just been left to like you know, be a commercial telepath and like kind of, you know, sit in on business dealings and stuff like that would be fairly happy. But no, she's like, you know, she also just because she's a telepath and is there on the scene has to like, you know, read the minds of murderers to. Yeah. And, you know, these other duties that they have to do just because nobody else can do them are real bad. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Agreed. 
So after her scan, Talia leaves the briefing room uh, and is promptly approached by Ironheart in the hallway. Uh, And he says he came to B5 to look for her, um, but obviously had to wait until after the entirely predictable scan to make contact. Uh, He has a very different story than Bester. He explains that he volunteered for experiments conducted by Earth Force and the Psychor in order to enhance telepathic abilities. And these experiments ultimately succeeded beyond the wildest dreams of the researchers. Ironheart's telepathic abilities, it's not like they haven't even been pushed to 11. They've been pushed to like 1100 million something. Um, They're way off the known scale. And he's also developed telekinetic abilities, which are incredibly rare. And if these particular revelations weren't chilling enough, uh, we also learned that the core didn't want telekinetics for like the obvious things that you would think would be useful for telekinetics, like doing heavy construction work in zero G or hard vacuum and, you know, dangerous things where having, um, you could save lives by having somebody, you know, move objects with their mind. N- no, they didn't. They didn't want that. They wanted Ironheart to practice incredibly fine, minute control, um, such as the control that you'd use to say, pinch off a critical blood vessel at just the right time. It's uh, f- funny that this is JMS will actually reuses this plot in a comic that he wrote later on. Interesting. Yeah, and this is that that is ultimately what prompted Ironheart to flee. And in the process, he killed the head researcher, who's the only person who would have been able to reproduce the experiment successfully. Unfortunately, Ironheart's condition is not what we'd call stable. Um, he undergoes a mind quake, um, shredding his surroundings, and also alerting the psychops to his location. Can I just point out that mind quake is awful it's an awful, awful phrase, phrase. Oh, it's a horrible name yeah i mean i like the idea that every time he that his mind is constant this process has left his mind in this like constantly evolving state where it's expanding and i mean so i was talking to a friend of mine about this episode and they compared him to a uh an emergent ai where it's constantly self self-improving yeah and like, cause they, we were, we were talking about like, well, why is he having these mind quakes? And I think that's a really interesting way to look at it. And that they, t- his brain like tips over and it suddenly just starts expanding and expanding and it kind of gets into this like runaway process. Yeah. And I like all that. And then to just be like, it's a mind quake. <laughs> yeah. It's such a reductive, dumb thing to say for like a really interesting concept. Um, yeah. I think it's one of those things where the writer probably wrote something much more interesting in the first draft. And then they sat down and they're like, okay, with a red pen, they like block out this big thing of exposition. And they're like, uh, too long mind quake question mark. (laughs) And, uh, the writer, you know, heaves a deep sigh and says, mind quake and like runs with it. But yeah, anyway. uh, I mean, even something like psychic blast or something would be almost better than mind quake. Yeah, it just it's 
it makes no sense because it's like, I don't know. I have yeah. so much beef with that, but it's not. It's completely pointless. It's such a dumb thing to have a problem with. But every every episode has to have some sort of minor beef. Yeah, this um, is not a vegetarian podcast. We got beef. Agreed. So so Ironheart surrounds himself in a impenetrable energy field and tries to meditate and calm his mind. Um. So he, as Drew just said, he's still undergoing this experimental transformation um, with his mind and abilities, et cetera, expanding, you know, as we speak. And he tells Talia that he's becoming something else, something beyond human. Um, and with all this revealed, Talia seeks out Sinclair and fills him in on all these real deeds. Um, Sinclair meets with Ironheart, who pleads for for help to just buy him the time that he needs to finish the transformation. Sinclair agrees and Garibaldi clears a path to the docking bay for Ironheart to escape. Things don't go as planned and Besser and Kelsey, the Psychops, confront Ironheart along his journey um, and they, they attempt to send a telepathic like shutdown signal to um, knock him unconscious. This backfires as all it actually does is distract Ironheart, who has been attempting to keep his shit together, and now he no longer has his shit together. Yeah. Kelsey pulls a gun on Ironheart and is vaporized for her trouble. Um, We can insert the Firefly, I can kill you with my brain gif here. Yeah. Uh, Bester is merely knocked out, which is definitely not harmful at all. Um, being knocked unconscious by things is not harmful to your brain. Well, especially for a, a tele, like, what does it do to a telepath to oh, get like worry. a concussion? It, the the inertial dampening that's caused by the rotational gravity of uh, B five and the, <laughs> and it, it's only, it's only like I'm going to walk to California and punch <laughs> you, Justin. <laughs> Listen, it, it's the whole thing of once you start complaining about head injuries in, in, in procedural fiction, you just have to toss out any like suspension of disbelief out the window. I will complain about head injuries everywhere. Thank you very much. So so Besser's knocked out um, and he will live to plague the B5 crew in future episodes. Um, you say plague, I say bless. Well, he blesses us, the audience. He plagues the crew fair enough fair enough point conceded so and an iron heart escapes and once he's out of range of the station uh his ship explodes and he becomes a being of pure energy uh he returns to b5 briefly to bid sinclair and winters farewell uh and he gives talia a mysterious gift before leaving to go presumably make friends with daniel jackson (laughs) Besser and Sinclair are now in the first of many situations of mutually assured destruction between the B-5 crew and Bester. Sinclair has video of the transformed Ironheart and knows the truth behind the experiments um, and also knows that Bester got his partner killed during the confrontation. Um, However, Bester has a lot of power. So the the deal is that if Besser asks to harm B5, Sinclair, or Talia, Sinclair will then reveal everything that he knows. Besser responds to this merely with a salute and the phrase, be seeing you. 
finally, we witness what Ironheart's gift to Talia was, as she is able to move a penny with her mind. The B-plot um, involves our favorite love interest, Catherine Sakai, um, except that she's actually good here. She's headed to the planet Sigma 957 to survey it thoroughly after initial scans suggested the presence of valuable resources. Uh, were any of those resources named in the previous episode? Um, yes. No, no, no. Was was it an element that was, no, not an element that was named in the previous episode that's never named again in any other episode? Mm. Bummer. It is it is quantum forty, which is apparently used in the construction of jump gates. Quillium and it's very 40? radioactive. <laughs> uh, as, um, as people of my Twitter threads would know, I, I have a thing for dot note remembering the names of stuff or purposely avoiding them. So I will just yeah. when we go through this, I'm just gonna call it different names. Yeah. There we go. Uh, I'm just uh I just think it's silly that not silly. I, I'm just teasing a little bit about the fact that this element they make a big honking deal about this element for two episodes and then it literally is never mentioned again for the entire run of the show yeah i mean it's that stuff that you use to make jump gates like quibbly 40 it's it's, unobtainium it's just dilithium high high test dilithium crystals yeah um so jakar um, who's part of the negotiations here for the you know resource rights to the planet, warns her off, saying that Sigma 957 is a dangerous place. He additionally warns Sakai that whatever Sinclair has said, no one on Babylon 5 is exactly as they appear, including himself. Sakai ignores his warnings and heads to the planet. Um... And Jakar very ominously opens a channel to the Narn military, requesting a small fleet of heavy fighters sent to Sigma 957 immediately. When Catherine arrives and begins to scan the planet, a very large and very strange looking alien ship appears out of nowhere and drains all the energy from her ship, uh, leaving her in a decaying orbit. Luckily, she's rescued by the Narn fighters um, sent by Jakar, who tow her safely back to B5. Sakai uh, finally finds Shakar and thanks him for the help um, and asks what he thinks the alien ship was. Um, And Shakar replies that they are ancient beings who are barely aware of younger races. Um, Sort of like, you know, we might be barely aware of ants on the ground and that, you know, generally they... Take no notice, but that doesn't mean that you won't get stepped on. I want to point out also that he has a really sweet line here where he said, she's like, well, why, why do it? Why save me? Why do you care? And he's like, why not? Yeah. Like it would not only like, why not? But like us, you know, you, you are the, you are beloved by the, the commander and the commander being sad is no good for me. But at the end of the day, like it cost, you know, I was, this is a, I was able to save your life and that's a good thing. Yeah. Like it's, it's Jakar being. Both caring and pragmatic. Yeah. There's two Jakars. There is the philosopher and the, 
and the revolutionary. And the ratio of how much of which we get varies throughout the show, depending on where he is in his life. And this is a, a, we don't see a ton of the philosopher. We don't see as much of the philosopher in the, in the early seasons. And this is a nice little appearance of him peeking out from behind the revolutionary's eyes. Yeah. And I also really like how in this episode, it feels like, you know, he seems to be coming across as like, you're kind of brash and domineering. And that's why Sakai is like, no, fuck you. I'm going to go there and get paid. Um, but that that ties in with his line of, you know, nobody hears exactly what they appear mm -hmm. because <laughs> like he he does genuinely care and he does like genuinely act to help her out. Yeah. And it turns out that was really good advice. Like she probably yeah. should have listened to him because that was a. Uh... Yeah. If if he had not made the effort to, to save her, she would have died there. Yeah. <laughs> I really have super mixed feelings about this episode. Uh, obviously, I love the Jakar stuff with Sakai, but that's kind of throwaway. Like, it's not... I mean, it is and it isn't, but um, I love Bester. I love, I love the character of Bester. I love his introduction. But, like... Ironheart is such a weird fucking character. And the whole storyline with Ironheart is so goddamn bizarre. And I really don't like the stuff, like ev like all the stuff with him and Talia. And yeah. Like the, the whole trope of like mentor, mentee, fuck. Um, um, is, I mean it's a bad trope. My least favorite part of this episode is Talia getting all misty-eyed talking about what it's like when telepaths make love. Was that this episode? Yeah. Or the, yeah? yeah, it's this episode. Yeah, I, that's so, this yeah. episode. It's I, I try to block that scene from my memory. Yeah. No, thank you. I really we're gonna we're gonna see this a little bit more in um future episodes, but I Definitely do not like how Talia is written as a character throughout pretty much the entire first two seasons of the show. Um, mostly because she's written as a very passive character who things happen to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And very rarely does a choice she make actually get to be a thing. And she, She's very damsel in distress-y. She's very yeah. much the counselor Troy. Oh, I sense something that, oh, oh. Yeah. Uh, take out your headphones for a second, Justin. It's bizarre that you, he mentions that, because now that I think about it, given the whole control thing that will happen with Talia, yeah. it's actually wild that she, because there's a degree to which she doesn't have a ton of agency, yeah, because she's being manipulated. Um, the, the one thing I do want to say while Justin has the headphones out is it's so clear, JMS had these like back doors so that if anybody ever left the show, he would have a way to keep the plot moving forward. Uh, they had to use it for Sinclair, and they used it for Talia eventually because Talia, the actress who played Talia, got tired of the, of not being not getting enough screen time, and wanted uh, to move on. Which and, you know, fair, honestly. Yeah, fair, honestly. I would I would probably get pissed off about acting as Talia is written as well. Yeah. 
Uh, so Lita came in and, and sort of filled that role. And uh, apparently the... Which is fucking wild because Lita was originally supposed to be the mm-hmm. telepath and Talia was the back door. Yeah, exactly. Which is crazy. And I, my, my recollection, I could be mistaken, but my recollection is that Talia's, Ironheart's gift to Talia was supposed to be like the Vorlon, what Lita's Vorlon upgrade ended up being. Interesting. But instead, it becomes a MacGuffin that like is ignored when Control takes her over and like, oh, there goes that. Yeah, we should probably let Justin put their headphones back on. So anyway, that's just my side. That whole that whole thing seems weird to me. Yeah. Welcome back. All right. Welcome back. So what did what did we like and what did we not like in this episode? Uh, other than like the, the Talia Talia's not written well. And I mean, we can agree that we all love Bester. I think we can just move yeah. on from that. For, for immediately off the bat, he is he is a presence that is slimy, disgusting, and horrible. And we love him for it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like he. I feel like he's also so so Justin on a recent podcast recording for discography talked about a villain that was on a villain that was in the book that was written very well as a very engaging villain who you was was not humanized in a way like you you weren't meant to like sympathize with them or like understand their motivations um i feel like bester is honestly in the same category like he's super compelling to watch but Mm -hmm. he's like even when and this is yes no maybe so kind of a spoiler they do give you more to humanize him but it doesn't matter Right, like because it's, it's that it's sort of rejected by the narrative, like that there are these things given as like, well, these might be reasons that he's a slime ball, but like also he's such a slime ball that who fucking cares? You're a human just like us, you know. Just because we've all got parents doesn't mean you, you know. But then you go and be Bester, like yeah. He remains. His character is so singularly like nefarious i think is the word i want uh that it 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 overrides any other anything else that the writers might that, that you might want to say about him uh in a in in a good way it's not a bad thing it's a great thing um they you can try and humanize him but all that does is really emphasize like how deeply he has he's come to like embody the psychop ideal he yeah. is the psychop. He's the the platonic ideal of psychop. I love Bester so much. He's such a good character. Mm-hmm. Same. Um, Garibaldi also had a real bad moment in this one. Ugh. There's that scene where Garibaldi and Talia are in the the elevator, <sighs> and Talia's explaining that, you know, strong emotion can be difficult to to block. Um, gets into the elevator. Garibaldi stares at her ass and then on her way out she 
elbows him in the solar plexus. And it's just like, Garibaldi, you're a disgusting man. Yeah, I mean, this is this is the, the point of that, that I honestly, I would, at this point, you know, Go to Sinclair with a, with a sexual harassment complaint. This is this is HR. We we are far past HR material here. Um, yeah, yeah. This is one of those things where the only thing that redeems this scene that makes this scene even remotely tolerable is the fa- is knowing that this was likely kind of a wink and a nod to the fact that uh, Talia and the actor the actors who played Talia and Garibaldi were married at the time. At that time, yeah. <laughs> like, like the fact that they give them, the, they give the two of them this weird, like, these weird interactions that never really go anywhere, and they don't seem to do anything. It just seems to be like an opportunity for uh, Jerry Doyle to like hit on his wife on TV. Yeah, it's so weird. Like. Not to kink shame, but like it's is it some kind of thing in his contract where he gets to be like a little weirdly exhibitionist? Like, did he take like 10 points off his <laughs> off his off his contract to like, you know, but I get to flirt with my wife in, in every fifth episode or something like I don't know. It's bizarre. Uh, gross. Can, can we talk about the bad CGI of this episode? <laughs> Which bad the- CGI? You mean the like uh, the 90s video game FMV uh, CGI? Yeah, the, the the one of like this just naked torso of a man who is ripped. I also like the uh, the music in that scene too, where it's like the music. Okay, continuing continuing my riff of like season one had bad music, my friends. Yeah. Uh, uh, it was not. It's so nineties. Um, yeah. Also, like, you know, the the whole humans ascending to like a being of pure light and energy. That was just like a thing. Yeah, there's like, like three TNG episodes of that. Like one yeah. of which was in the final season season of TNG, which came out at about the same time as this episode. It's yeah. like yeah. within a year. Within a year. <laughs> And then, and then we also have Daniel Jackson ascending like seventeen times. But that's yeah. all in the two thousands. <laughs> fair, fair. Do I want to make Justin take off the headphones again so oh I can make God. a joke? <laughs> Fine. <laughs> it's bizarre to me that the fucking humans of all the races someday ascend with the Minbari. And the Narn and the Centauri don't. Yeah. That's like, I'm sorry, show me where the humans are so much more advanced. I don't know. I just think that's it's dumb It's because they're and actually silly. Mimbari. Uh, that's my response to that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, you're good. The things I do for love. Also, this is, I think, our first... This, this is our first on-screen depiction of Psychor, who are the fucking worst... Yeah, we've talked a little bit about like the world building around telepathy in this show, uh-huh. but this is the first time we get it like really slapped up in the face, and uh, yeah, they're not fucking around with it. From the moment I heard that they were like assigning power levels to telepaths, I got very worried. <laughs> yeah, because we we start out with the tell with Ivanova telling Talia about her mother, 
And here we're starting to get into the show where we get two psychops on screen and they're so bad. Like they are awful people. The, the depiction of Psychor seems to be like consistently shitty. I'm struggling to think of a of a time in the show's run where they anybody has like a positive outcome from an interaction with Psychor. I don't think there are any other than maybe Garibaldi like blackmailing them into giving him access to stuff. Yeah, maybe that might be the only one. Um, I think that that might be it. I mean, it's we're going to get into this further down the series, but it is the um, it, it's the, the thing that authoritarian governments will use whatever they can to exploit people. And it, it's yep. this is this is like the the sci fi equivalent of, oh, no, Google is openly um, no, Google is openly assisting, uh, you know, handing over your search history to the to the FBI, to which, as a writer, please, um, that was for research. I, <laughs> I don't actually have me to, <laughs> to insert <laughs> for <laughs> Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Are we suggesting that Google is Psychor? I'm saying that it's like it's the same thing of like the the way in which like Earth Force uses whatever it can in this case yeah. telepaths and you know deciding oh hey we can use this and this I mean, Psychor is partly doing it themselves but this broadly expansive way of manipulating people and controlling people. It's yeah. the same way it's like, oh, I got an, I got a Google Home. Well, guess what? It spies on you for the government. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's yeah. interesting the way that... They, I mean, I think you've seen the episodes that get into this by now, uh, where the the question of where is the where's the line, or where really is the, the sort of the, the impetus for the, this authoritarianism with regards to Psychor? Is it who's being used and who's doing the using when it comes to Psychor uh, becomes very blurry uh, as, as the show goes on. Um, the degree sure. to which, you know, our site, I think there's an episode where they talk about like, you locked all the telepaths up in Psychor because you were afraid of them. And now you have even more to be afraid of because you locked them all up in one place and they turned into a monster. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, I can get why Psychor was originally created. Like that they're, they're presenting like, okay, protecting people's privacy is, you know, an important thing, especially when it's considered that like 1% of the human population has at least late in telepathic ability. Yeah. But whatever original intent Psychor had is just far beyond it, that, that, that ship has far long sailed. Yeah. And frankly, I don't know would be a, I don't know what would be a good replacement for it. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like the the whole thing with um yeah, having having something where you're turning some where you're enhancing telepathic abilities and like turning somebody into a stable telekinetic, like that could be so beneficial because you know there are so many things that a powerful telekinetic could do that would like save lives, you know, etc. Yeah. Well, and and instead it's like, well, 
But what if you killed someone? So let's talk about experimenting on people for possibly the greater good. Because I do not think it is a coincidence that Jason Ironheart was cast as a black actor or was cast as the black actor. Because yeah. everything that is described here is well, very similar to what happened in the Tuskegee syphilis experiments. Um, you know, the government performed a scientific experiment on uh, approximately 600 black men who had syphilis so that they could study it. And, I mean, it's not entirely similar, but this the, that set off immediate historical uh, similarities there. Um, it's not exactly one-to-one, but uh, mm-hmm. JMS does love bringing in his historical precedence. Yeah. yeah. And if it, even if it wasn't, he wasn't intending to, it to be like a, a, a one-to-one, I think the idea of... the I think the idea... That, I don't think it's... I agree with you that I don't think it was accidental that it was uh, a black man that they chose to cast uh, as the... As Psychor's subject for this experimentation, because that idea of power, you know, abusive power, and uh, is so embedded in what Psychor is, and that's very much uh, a trope that would be very easily sort of recognizable. Uh, so it it, may, it fits to have it be uh, to to cast it like that, gross yeah. as it is, for sure. Uh, I just want to mention one thing about this episode, um, and that is the bizarre way that Bester fires his gun. Um, I don't know if you noticed this, but go ahead and look at the um, picture. If you go to the Lurker's Guide, it's there, or find a picture of, of Bester firing his PPG. You'll notice that he props his arm up on his fist to fire. What? Oh, this is... Um, <sighs> yeah, I remember this now. Yeah. Uh, this befuddled me for years until I found out what was going on. Uh, and in case you too are befuddled by the this weird fucking stance, uh, the reason for this is uh, Walter Koenig uh, has an injury that prevented him from using uh, one of his hands, I believe it was, correctly. I believe it's the left hand. Yeah, his left hand. So as a consequence, uh, he didn't have much... He basically couldn't use his left hand. So that's why, rather than doing like a teacup grip or something with a PPG, um, that's why he's doing this weird like closed fist stacky thing that he's doing. Um, Interesting. And that's why he also, in all the scenes, you'll notice he almost always has that one fist down at his side. Okay, I just... I just looked this up because I thought I'd read something about this before. It's not a entry of Kinnings. It's a choice he made for the character. Interesting. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, he liked the idea of him just having like having a one hand that just wasn't w- worth it. Um, yeah, or, or that wasn't usable very much. So it's like it's always clenching a fist. Interesting. So that's that's a really interesting piece of physical acting. That's great. You might be confusing that with another hand injury from another original series, uh, Star Trek original series actor. Uh, no, I know I know who you're talking about, Scotty yeah. with his missing fingers. Um, but that may be sort of where I'm mixing up the, the threads there. But yeah, that's cool that he 
that's actually better i think that he it, yeah. it's a a choice he made for the character in the show that's cool we also get some like weird space cosmic horror stuff with whatever the frick that thing was and yeah <laughs> this this has the first introduction of the concept of elder races or perhaps elder gods yeah. um Okay, so a bunch of the CGI in this episode was awful, but I feel like the CGI for the alien ships like fucking slaps. Like that's good. That's good because it's like it's not something your brain can assign. Like, oh hey, I recognize this as this. This is just this weird alien spaceship, and it's got a neat art design on it. Right. Like they're not trying to make something like photorealistic or anything like that. They're trying to make like a weird like ship that has gone to a rave and taken too many drugs or something. <laughs> yeah. And like is decorated with glow sticks and also like has a bunch of static electricity. Like it's just absolutely wild and it looks really cool. Agreed. And like that, you know, if you just kind of redid that exact same thing with higher poly count and et cetera, et cetera, with like modern CGI, it would absolutely hold up. I'll tell you what won't hold up. Mindquake! <laughs> that is it for this week. Join us next time as we are going to be covering episode 7, The War Prayer, and episode 8, And the Sky Full of Stars. Tune in next time, and we'll be seeing ya! The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share-alike no derivatives license.